Some of the technologies and schemes of the deep state are so outrageous, so futuristic, so nightmarish, you can't even believe that they're real, but they are. And with us today in studio is an expert on this subject. Stay tuned and I'll tell you more. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Behind the Deep State. I'm your host, Alex Newman, Senior Editor at The New American Magazine. I'm in The New American Magazine's studios, and uh, with me here is uh, the publisher of The New American, Dennis Berendt. Uh, he's also the author of Endgame, COVID and the Dark State Quest for Biodigital Convergence in a Transhumanist World. It's a mouthful, but once you realize what all that means... Um, it is really, really, really creepy. Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I want to start with the obvious question, what is the end game? Well, Alex, thanks for having me. And I think the answer to what is the end game is uh, encapsulated in a single word, and that is singularity. It's a term coined by a, a few people, most notably Ray Kurzweil, who's an engineer at Google now. And it is the state at which the technology that we have and can bring to bear on uh, uh, in essentially humanity itself uh, is getting to the point where it's so sophisticated, it's such a departure from all that's gone before that we can no longer predict what the future will be like once we reach that point. And Endgame is uh, a description of the strategy and tactics and technologies that are bringing us to that point. So do you think these people working on this at, at the highest levels, I mean, the, the deep staters of the deep staters, the people that we don't hear much about in the press, um, if this is so unpredictable, if they have no idea what's going to happen, why are they working on this? Suppose it undermines their power. Suppose it ends up killing them. I mean, well, they are uh, techno-optimists in one sense, uh, but they believe that um, a small minority class, themselves included, uh, can benefit from these technologies in a new way, in a way that's unprecedented in all of human history, and that these technologies are for just this benighted United class of special people, and through it they will achieve uh, extreme longevity of lifespan, uh, what they consider to be effective immortality. Uh, without God, by the way, this is a very godless uh, initiative. They believe that they can achieve uh, a new harmony of biology and digital technology, which is where the Canadian government, in fact, coined the term biodigital convergence in the subtitle of this book. Uh, I can't take any credit for that. I'm taking that off of a Canadian government. Uh, uh, a data sheet, a white paper where they're talking about why this is inevitable and desirable. And, uh, you know, if you put it in the context of some of the trends that you see just everywhere around you, for instance, climate change, and there's too many people in the world, mm -hmm. uh, this technology would allow this class of uh, super elite who believe uh, in ultimately the reaching the singularity to transition beyond humanity itself into something that's no longer humanity. It's transhuman. And that would be better for the environment. There wouldn't need to be as many people. Most people could be digital versions of themselves. And we'd have a, a new techno-utopia that even though we can't quite visualize it, they, they think to themselves that this is an optimal outcome. Um, you know, and I look at it and I see transhumanism in it and I say, well, what does that mean? Uh, that means something post-human, and if you're using the term post-human, which they are, you can go out and you can see that in their in their texts, in their books, in their speeches, they they openly use the term post-human. That supposes that accepts the idea that humanity as it is won't exist any longer. So, to be perfectly blunt, we're talking about the elimination of humanity in the transition to something that comes next. Yeah, oh man, this stuff is so wild, and I'm, I'm sure there are people out there watching us thinking, like, that's crazy talk. That is never going to happen. Uh, so in the interest of just 
um, showing people that this is kind of common knowledge among the elites. I want to share with you guys a few videos of Yuval Noah Harari. He's a big wig at the World Economic Forum. We've showed, I think, some of these videos before, but uh, he's, he's uh, very close with Klaus Schwab. His work has been endorsed by Barack Obama, uh, Mark Zuckerberg at uh, Fascist Book, I mean, Facebook, um, uh, Angela Merkel. And so uh, first, I'll show you a video where he says that um, basically we're going to evolve into gods. We're going to become gods. Watch this. So it is very likely that within a century or two, Homo sapiens, as we've known it for thousands of years, will disappear. Uh, not because, like in some Hollywood science fiction movie, the robots will come and kill us, but rather because we will use technology to upgrade ourselves, or at least some of us, into something different, something which is far more different from us than we are different from Neanderthals. Uh, here's one more video where he actually says that we're going to be better than the God of the Bible because uh, the God of the Bible can only create organic life. But here now these people think they're going to be creating organic and uh, kind of technological uh, digital life. Watch this. You know, we'll soon have the power to re-engineer our bodies and brains, whether it is with genetic engineering or by directly connecting brains to computers or by creating completely non-organic entities, artificial intelligence, which is not based at all on the organic body and the organic brain. And these technologies are developing at breakneck speed. Now, and then finally, uh, to your point about, uh, you know, what do we do with all these people? Um, Yuval Noah Harari has offered some thoughts on that as well. Uh, you know, he says we're hackable animals, that we have no soul. And so what do you do now that there's no more jobs for people to do? Well, uh, keep us happy with drugs and video games, apparently, if they're going to keep us alive. So check this out. The problem is more uh, boredom and how, what to do with them and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless. My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games. So, uh, pretty creepy stuff, but it's real, right? I mean, we're not making yeah. this stuff up. You've got this book uh, meticulously footnoted. You've got all these sources in the back. I mean, right. this stuff is in government documents. It's, it's out there for the people who care to look. You're just not going to hear it about it on the fake media. Um, so, let's get back to the subject of what we do with people. You know, we just heard Yuval Noah Harari talk about keeping us happy with, uh, with video games and, and drugs. Um, but th there's also, I think, this undercurrent, and you talk about it in the book. In fact, you open the book with, with this uh, discussion of this fanaticism that's been around for hundreds of years, yeah. this idea that there are too many people and that the planet can't sustain us and that we'd be better off without us. Talk about that depopulation, that eugenics mindset among the elite. Well, mindset is, I think, a very key point. Uh, now, for normal people, which I hope to be one someday, and I hope most of you watching this are normal, uh, you're going to think, Anyone who's talking about massive depopulation, population control, this is just pure fantasy. They're just speaking, you know, crazy talk. None of it could ever happen. It's not real. Uh, it's just rhetoric. Um, I think that's a dangerous naivete to have because, first of all, we need to look at our own recent history. The 20th century was the bloodiest century in all of human history. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people were murdered at the hands of their own governments. Uh, so first of all, we have direct recent experience knowing that bloodthirsty tyrants will kill millions and hundreds of millions of people. It's happened. With a smile on their face. With a smile on their yeah. face. It's happened. It, these atrocities are not from the deep, dark recesses of history. They're real in our recent history. Uh, second, 
right alongside of those things happening, even within our own country, some of the richest, most influential people, uh, the Rockefeller family, uh, people involved with our State Department at the highest levels, Kissinger, uh, right down to the present day to to Bill Gates, uh, Jane Goodall, they openly talk about the need to radically reduce the population of the planet. Uh, I don't think we can afford given our history and their ongoing rhetoric over the last 100 years, not to take them seriously. If they say they mean to depopulate the planet, I think it's time to listen to them and take it seriously. I take this as a direct threat to the existence of our population, whether it's in this country or elsewhere. Uh, And I think it's time that we own up to that as a a responsibility to maintain our freedom and our integrity of ourselves, our families, our friends. We don't want to see these atrocities perpetrated any longer. the 20th century is far too bloody. We can't let that happen in the 21st century. And the time to realize that it can happen is now. And if we don't realize that this is a real threat, we're going to let it happen. Now, that's kind of underscoring the point of endgame because we've just come through the COVID uh, pandemic period, if you will. And how do we understand what's been taking place in the COVID pandemic? And Uh, I argue in the book you can't separate what we've experienced with the COVID pandemic from this rhetoric and history of depopulation agenda. And I think within the framework of that, only then does COVID begin to make sense and we can form a hypothesis. And what I put forward in the book is a hypothesis uh, that at the time of writing didn't have any testable ability to it in terms of what we were at that point witnessing. We were too early. But we we could form a hypothesis that we could test against data moving forward once the book was published. And that hypothesis could be, and I propose is, that COVID, the pandemic, and the response to it was a test case to see if the population could be convinced to accept depopulation measures. And Uh, I think we are now beginning to enter the period where we can begin to see if that hypothesis is supported by observable facts downstream of the uh, experience. And I think most people watching this can marshal in front of them uh, many disturbing facts of things they've witnessed and experienced in recent weeks and months and seen uh, that suggest that maybe that hypothesis is on the verge of being confirmed. Yeah. In fact, the uh, former chief science officer of Pfizer has come out, you know, very logical, reasonable guy, and says, you know, I'm looking at all this and I can't come to any other conclusion than that this is depopulation. They're trying yeah. to kill people. Uh, and, and, you know, to, to what you just said about personal experience, um, my dad took this Pfizer injection. His heart stopped. Uh, we finally got around to looking at the batch number and cross-referencing it with what was in VAERS. Hundreds of reports of death thousands of reports of uh, adverse reactions just from these batches. And there are millions of people across the country who've experienced this. And to your point about depopulation, you know, I think to a lot of people that sounds crazy. But I go to these UN conferences, and they're so open about it. We've got all kinds of interviews. You can see them on the New Americans channel of, of leading people at these UN summits, people who are keynote speakers on the main stage telling us on camera there are way too many people. You know, sometimes they say, well, we should get rid of 90% or 95% or 80%. You know, they might have some variation. But they're so open about this uh, idea that we have too many people yeah. on the planet. Uh, and, of course, God, in uh, the, literally the very first command to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply. So uh, I want to ask you about the, the religion of these folks. I think some of them pretend to be Methodists or Catholics or Jews or whatever. Um, 
What are the religious views? Do you think they have religious views? Are they? You know, oh, we hear yeah. sometimes that they're Luciferian. What are your thoughts? I think that they are uh, very religious, but not in the sense that you or I might be religious, or that we would think of you know our our normal friends and neighbors and most people around the world being religious, whether they're Catholic or Lutheran or you know, name your denomination that you might be a part of. Uh, these are these are people who have a religion, but it's a religion of extreme. Uh, humanity as opposed to uh, spirituality. They believe firmly that mankind can create a new God and supplant the God of the Bible and make the God of the Bible irrelevant. Uh, they believe that that is possible to establish paradise on earth, uh, yeah. that the afterlife is something humans can create and humans can get to that afterlife purely through human intellect and purely through human technology, which is 100% of the point of the singularity concept. It's transitioning to this human veil that we live in, this veil of tears, this veil of sorrow that they believe we exist in, and achieving immortality and salvation via human technology. And of course, that's not something that uh, everyone can have, which is the great contrast to the idea of salvation in Christianity. Everyone in Christianity can repent and follow Jesus and uh, achieve salvation through Jesus. Uh, That is not something in the elite circles that is desired. Uh, Only a select few who have access to the technology can then achieve salvation. So in that sense, uh, the elitist aspect of that is diametrically opposed to the Christian concept of salvation. Um, and uh, therefore, I would say heretical, foundationally heretical. Yeah, it sounds to me like it comes from the pit of hell. Um, and you mentioned something really interesting. Um, Ray Kurzweil, you, you talked about the singularity. The leading proponent of this that I know of is Ray Kurzweil, chief of engineering yeah. at Google. And um, he's actually made his views pretty clear. Um, we've got a little clip of Ray Kurzweil. He's asked uh, in his documentary um, you know, what he thinks about God. And uh, does God exist? Uh, And he answers, not yet. In other words, you know, we're building. Let's roll that clip real quick. In the documentary about Kurzweil, his last words in the film are, So does God exist? Well, I would say not yet. So these are not like fringe wackadoodles in the dark corners of the Internet. These are are some of the most important people in the technology world, in uh, the world of the deep state policy, etc. So uh, let's talk about this idea of building a God. Artificial intelligence, of course, is now... Um, part of the common lexicon. We've got uh, chat GPT now is out, and I, I've experimented some with it. I know you have as well. Yep. Um, what is artificial intelligence? For a person who hasn't really followed this, what is it? Uh, is it a threat? Could it be used for good, evil, and where does it fit into this plan for uh, the end game? Yeah, artificial intelligence is something that uh, culturally I think we're really grappling with across the board. And uh, there's a possibility that artificial intelligence could be uh, used for both good and ill, which is, I think, true of most technologies as they become more and more advanced. Um, But in the case of artificial intelligence, uh, artificial intelligence is really taking the uh, industrial revolution where we used engineering and tools to expand human physical capacity. Now we're moving into using tools and techniques and software and computing to expand human mental capacity and not only augment it, but now create analogs to it. Uh, We've been augmenting it with the computer revolution since the 1940s. Now we're going to create analogs to it with artificial intelligence. Now, what will those analogs be like? Um, I think some people have cogently argued that if you get to a point where AI uh, can begin to train itself, 
uh, and then build itself and then iterate upon that and become uh, increasingly more powerful without people adding to that. So this is entirely within the realm of AI doing it to itself. Then we reach a point where the acceleration of that takes place at such a rate that it quickly and very efficiently outstrips anything even all of humanity itself can combine to do with the combined mental capacity of all of all people. Uh, are we which, there yet or are we going there, you think? People believe we are going there, and that is really the key thing. I don't know if I believe we're going there, but what I believe makes no difference whatsoever. What the billionaire elitist class <laughs> in the deep state believes really matters because when they take action on their beliefs, it affects the entire world. And so they increasingly firmly believe that we are going there, which is why they want to create biodigital convergence in a sense. They believe that we can't compete with AI when AI achieves its superintelligent state, so we must merge with it or we will be replaced by it. Uh, of course, they look at that merger as salvation. That's the religious aspect of it. Singularity. They're creating, they're creating God. They can then merge with God, and this is all through human technological development, uh, which replaces you know, Christian salvation. Um, but, yeah, they believe it, and so then they act on those beliefs. And if you believe that this is what's going to happen and you believe only a minority of people can benefit or even should benefit from it um, and that it's going to displace the vast number of population of, uh, of people on the planet, uh, that is a disturbing uh, uh conclusion to reach if you are also of mind that there's too many people anyway and we should eliminate them. Uh, so we're getting to the point where these beliefs start to converge in ways that make for really dangerous potential policy decisions that get foisted upon the entire world. And I, I think we're close to that happening. The singularity is dangerous for most people. Yeah. Wow. Um, pretty terrifying stuff, Dennis. Uh, what, what, what do we do about this? I mean, should, should these people be preemptively arrested because there's a the suspicion of you know, wanting to get rid of a lot of us? Or well, sh should we try to harness this for good purposes? I mean, what does a normal person do confronted with this monster? The very first thing is most of the funding for this uh, comes from our federal agencies. Uh, so the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, for one, funds a lot of research into the technologies that underlie this transition. And so this is public funding, and it starts in Congress. And what Congress funds is informed by the knowledge of the people who send people to Congress. So fundamentally, and I would say this goes back to the John Birch Society. The John Birch Society has for decades said Congress is the key. An informed electorate making good choices to send the right people to Congress as representatives is the key to making sure that we have a government that is true to its constitutional origins and to its theoretical uh, responsibilities to protect human freedom in this country and ultimately because we do it here everywhere else. So the first step, everyone uh, who is listening to this and all Americans need to become increasingly conversant with the technology development that is taking place under their nose in laboratories all around the country. And I frequently cite a book I read, which I, I think about a lot of the examples that come from this book, and it was written by a lady named Jennifer Doudna. And if you haven't heard her name, you will eventually. Jennifer Doudna is uh, one of the great modern biologists, and she is the person who discovered uh, CRISPR, 
the CRISPR gene in bacteria. And uh, that's she, the technology that helps edit genetic coding. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So she she discovered this. She wasn't looking for it, but she discovered it. She talks about it in her autobiography. But one of the things she said in her autobiography that sticks with me is that she goes to work every day at her laboratory. And she does this incredibly sophisticated science that's changing the world, that she knows is going to change the world. And then she goes home to her everyday life, and uh, she's got her kids and her family, and people go to school, and these two worlds don't meet and don't intersect. And the, the everyday life world has no idea of the revolutionary technologies and science that's taking place that she's involved with in her lab, and it's a bit concerning to her, and she points this out in her autobiography. Now, this is happening everywhere. It's not just in biology. It's not just in nanotechnology. It's literally happening everywhere. Most people have no idea just how sophisticated the technology is becoming. We increasingly live in a world that is more advanced than even the most advanced science fiction you see at the movies. And we need to become more aware of this technological development so that it doesn't end up impacting us in ways that no one expects, that on the other hand, we control it as citizens to our benefit and not end up, uh, you know, really penalized by it, hurt by it, uh, maybe killed by it in the future. All right, so become familiar with it. And, you know, a follow-up question on that. We've got DARPA putting a lot of the funding into this. Of course, Incutel, Michael Crow, the, the chairman of Incutel, who also runs Arizona State University. Yep. I mean, they're pouring massive amounts of money from the intelligence community into these kinds of technologies. And in my opinion, these people are, are evil beyond measure. But uh, their argument will be, well, if we don't do it, communist China is going to do it, and then they're going to turn it as a weapon against us. So, you know, should the federal government be researching these things? I mean, is, is there a plausible case to be made that it's important for our national security that the United States remain at the forefront of these technologies? And then how do we make sure that evil maniacs don't get a hold of it and turn it against us? Well, I don't think there is a plausible case for it to be done at the national level in a federal sense by governments. Um, governments typically don't work on technologies from the point of view that they want to benefit humanity. They're looking at it from the point of view of some sort of level of aggression, which you just kind of highlighted from a national defense point of view. If we go back a century ago, for instance, uh, government-funded research into technology was not the norm. Um, Companies ran gigantic research parks. Now, why did companies do that? Uh, And this is where I come from. So uh, I worked in the, you know, sort of rump state version of this where some elements of that still existed in private industry. Why Why did companies invest in research? Why did National Cash Register back in the 1920s and 30s invest in research? They were looking to come up with a good product that would help their customers that they could then sell because they were looking to have a successful commercial enterprise. And this benefits everyone. This is how technology is brought to the market in a way that benefits people. Uh, That used to be the norm, whether it started with Edison, National Cash Register, I pointed that out, Bell Labs. Uh, If you go back far enough, these things were done commercially to generate new innovative products that would help people. we're no longer doing that. Most of the time, technology is being funded. It's being done at universities through federal grants, usually because there's a federal purpose, which often has to do with national defense, which is by far the largest part of our budget. And when it's with national defense, those are weaponization technologies. And weaponization technologies aren't there to help people. They're there to harm people. If we got that funding gone, which is really largely unconstitutional, get rid of it, 
then we're going to have a different level of technological development, one that's going to benefit people in the marketplace. Uh, we'll have technologies for AI that, instead of being a danger, those AI technologies would be beneficial. Uh, there wouldn't be the effort to build an all-encompassing AI-powered weapon system, which we have this going on, by the way. Yeah. Uh, we have this going on particularly with regard to the Air Force with uh, uh, unmanned aerial uh, drones that can fly alongside, at least in the starting point, manned aircraft and be uh, force multipliers for manned aircraft flights. And we have these AI drones that would, that would be flying alongside them and doing air combat and air, uh, combat air support missions and whatnot. Um, those AI weapons technologies present a drastic threat. Uh, when you turn loose an AI, uh, you now as we've seen with our existing AI attempts, uh, despite all the efforts to make some of the AIs that we've worked with to be, let's say, not racist, they've turned out to be racist. Yeah, I saw Facebook had a racist AI <laughs> right. chatbot, right? <laughs> yep. So even though we think we can make an AI that's going to perform how we might envision it to perform, ultimately we can't exactly know that because when we have uh, an AI that's self-learning through self-reinforcement learning techniques, uh, we can't predict exactly the end state of that's going to emerge, and that becomes pretty dangerous. So we're, we're creating technologies that we don't fully understand and can't fully control, and if uh, some of the uh, people who are theorizing where AI is going are correct, and not only can we not predict it, that if they achieve those levels of capability, they'll be far more advanced than we could ever begin to handle. So we're, we're playing with really dangerous technologies, and I'll, I'll end this little diatribe with reference to Elon Musk, who has been openly stating uh, that you know he's closer to AI development than most people realize, which makes complete sense based on you know Tesla's AI endeavors and whatnot. He was involved in ChatGPT. Huh? He, he was involved in the beginning of OpenAI, which is the uh, you know the, the organization that brought ChatGPT, mm -hmm. the currently uh, you know really hot AI product, to the market. Um, he's said that uh, AI is far more dangerous than nuclear weapons, and I think he's absolutely right. He said it's like raising a demon. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's yeah. unbelievable. Uh, Dennis, this has been so fascinating. Uh, I hope we didn't scare you all to death. Uh, what's the best way to get this book? The best way to get the book is go to shopjbs.org. Uh, shopjbs.org has the book available for you. If you're on Amazon, you can get it on Amazon as well. Look it up. We have it there. Uh, so one of the two places, we're happy for you to look it up and get it. Uh, but please go to shopjbs.org. You'll find Endgame there, but a lot of other uh, allied things as well. And I would say, Alex, your own book is at shopjbs.org. And uh, I think pairing your book, Deep State, with Endgame is a great, a great combination for people who want to understand where we're at and where we're going. Excellent. Dennis Barron, thank you so much for joining us. All right, folks, that's all we have time for today. I'm Alex Newman, your host here at Behind the Deep State. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, God bless you all. Sophia paused before the door. It read, Department of Biodigital Convergence. Just inside was a new world, a better world, the one of everlasting life, of no pain, of no loss, of no problem. She entered the chamber and her surroundings changed. She saw around her an infinite field of waving golden grain surmounted by cloudless blue sky. The AI voice whispered gently in her mind, Welcome to the Singularity. She couldn't see it and couldn't feel it, but her body had almost instantly been covered by a swarm of tiny gray multi-legged bots that melted through her clothes and into her skin. Not perceiving the nightmare, her eyes had already been consumed and the rest of her body was dissolving as the bots digested her flesh. She felt only a warmth suffusing her being. Drowsy, she drifted to sleep, and her last thought was one of panic. Would she ever wake? Could a nightmare vision like this be an outcome of the much-hyped transhumanist technological singularity? Enter the world of the future as illuminated by the experience of the past in Endgame. 
the new book by Dennis Barrett, the publisher of The New American Magazine, and find out how the disastrous COVID pandemic response fits with the technocratic elite's thirst to create a transhumanist utopia. Get Endgame from shopjbs.org with free shipping with code ENDSHIP, E-N-D-S-H-I-P. Or get Endgame and the Great Reset Collector's Issue of The New American Magazine and get free shipping plus an additional 20% off both with code N20, E-N-D-2-0.